Hello, friends. Welcome to Exit Point. If you're listening for the first time, this is a podcast about base jumping, wingsuiting, and all the ups and downs that come with it. Whether you're curious about getting into base, passionate about mountain sports, interested in how our top athletes approach risk assessment, or already an expert jumper yourself, you're sure to pick up nuggets of actionable advice and gain some new perspectives when you listen to Exit Point. In this episode, I speak with Kenny Daniel, who's the founder and designer of Baseline. Baseline is a website and mobile app that provides some tools designed to help skydivers and base jumpers improve their safety margin and increase performance. I've been excited to chat with Kenny about how I can best use Baseline for what I'm doing and some general suggestions about data gathering for base. So without further ado, let's get him on the track. Do you think that having all the technology and uh, being super accurate with the performance is uh, makes it safer or can also at the same time be more dangerous? Uh, I absolutely think it makes it safer overall. I know people talk about that, uh, you know, normalization of risk and just the more you make safety tools, the more people are going to push it. But ultimately, I don't think anybody would argue that all of the progress in safety, whether it's on the suits or the technology or, you know, even just the practice in the sky and, and the experience that people have developed and things like the wingsuit tunnel. Does this allow people to do harder and more dangerous things? Sure. But it also provides people with an opportunity to do things safer. Uh, and it's a personal decision where obviously anybody can choose to push things as far as they want to. It's base jumping. But I would much rather that we be in a world where we have all the tools available to us more than just a rock drop. Right. So maybe it isn't safer or more dangerous. It just allows us to have more awareness about what's going on. In skiing, I don't know if you're involved in skiing, but in skiing, they, they this gets thrown a lot around. But like the person that's, they say the the person that's most likely to die in an avalanche is someone who just took their avalanche course. You know, because they feel like they have this new set of skills to evaluate the terrain, and and it allows them to to act in a more bold nature in the in the backcountry. Yeah, and I think that we could draw some similarities to you know, using laser range finders being dialed in with our fly site tech. Is that something you've, you've thought about? Yeah. And I think you make a really good point there with, with the avalanche analogy, right? Uh, I do think that there's a hazard, especially when you first learn these techniques, uh, that you might feel like all of a sudden, Hey, I can, I can go jump anything that the data says that I can. And that's probably not a good tactic for having a long life. Uh, but, you know, to your, your point, uh, there's people who become experts, things like avalanche terrain or mountaineering or base jumping or, or any particular thing. And having those tools is, is going to be invaluable and it helps increase their probability and increase their margins. Uh, you do need to watch out uh, for that sort of initial hazard and the human factors uh, that especially can happen early on in the learning curve. What are some of those? Uh, so, I mean, like you said, there, there can be a false sense of complacency and even if the data says that on a given jump, you know, maybe you, that, that you can survive that and you can do that. Have you really collected enough data to know what is your best case and what's your worst case scenario? Uh, that doesn't happen from just one track. You need to get dozens, uh, ideally even hundreds of, of data points in order to really know that that's going to be the case because things happen fast, right? You can't always predict everything when it comes to conditions or just 
human factors like are you going to slip on exit or you know something just totally crazy happens um so the data doesn't necessarily tell you the whole picture uh but it's a very valuable tool i think to be able to evaluate against cool so why don't why don't you tell me or tell us what baseline is and how we can use it to uh, better assess our jumping yeah absolutely so at a basic level, baseline is a set of tools for base jumpers to analyze their performance and evaluate new exit points and jumps. What that means in practice uh, is that typically, whether you're skydiving or base jumping, you're going to be recording your data, uh, your GPS flight data, using something like a FlySight. And after the jump, uh, you're going to want to analyze that data. There's a number of tools that various people have made in order to do that, and Baseline is one of them with a focus on the mission of base jumping, evaluating things like the starts, flight performance, uh, you know, flares for deployment, uh, and as mentioned, sort of evaluating new exit points and new sites and comparing your data against measured cliffs and, and new locations. And so those measured cliffs, is that something that's incorporated within uh, your website or is that something that you have to, as a user, put in manually? Uh, so there's a little bit of nuance there uh, in that when you first sign up for Baseline, you are just going to have basic level access. You can upload tracks. It's not going to have a database of exit points. It's not going to have a database of laser profiles. After you've used it for a bit and you've uploaded some base jumping tracks um, or you know, you've proven yourself as a base jumper, uh, you can get verified. So this is kind of a basic level of uh, prevention to prevent just arbitrary people from coming in, getting access to sites that might be sensitive or getting in over their head. Uh, but once you've done kind of the basic level things, if you've done a trip to Europe, if you've logged some data and seem like you kind of know what you're doing at a basic level at some basic sites, then there's an option to get verified. And what that'll do is that will open up a whole number of exit points on the map, and it will enable access to laser profiles that are uploaded by, by other jumpers in the community. Uh, this is meant to be kind of a compromise between some of the old school ethics where you're never supposed to name a site and you don't want word getting out uh, versus some of the sort of newer school mindset of, you know, it's better to share the information, get good information out there so that people can make an informed decision. So they're not just wandering around the mountains uh, uninformed. Uh, it's definitely a trade-off. It's something that I think about a lot. And it's one of the things that I think distinguishes the various tools and sites out there that are available for base jumpers. I think uh, Baseline has the potential to make all this data collection a lot easier and, and faster more convenient. Um, I haven't used it too much. I just sort of logged in. I think it was this year, the first time I logged in and uh, uploaded some tracks and started playing around with the different functions. But I uh, went to an exit point uh, a couple of weeks ago with a friend who uses it regularly. And uh, we were there trying to open a new exit. And uh, it was so fast it, with the Bluetooth connected laser range finder, being able to upload it and then compare it to other tracks and other exit points. It sort of took a lot of the calculations and uh, processes that took much longer for me in the past. It was like almost instant. 
So maybe could you expand a little bit on how it can make these operations more convenient and uh, quicker for us? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you're referring to there is probably the single most valuable feature of Baseline. There's a whole bunch of different things that it can do. But honestly, I think that the most valuable feature and, and thing that came out of it was that ability to pair with a Bluetooth laser rangefinder or even just using a regular one, entering in the coordinates into the app and being able to see uh, exactly what the cliff looks like in comparison to your tracks. This is not something that I invented. This is something that some of the most elite and, and you know experienced jumpers have been doing for a while, but it was extremely uh, painful to do. It took a lot of work, manual work. Uh, so there's people like uh, Richard Webb, James Yaru, Ben Verde, who I know even before tools like Baseline were around, they would go to a cliff, they would measure it using a laser range finder, they would record their data using fly sites, and they would go home and they would, in many cases, use literally pen and paper to draw out what their profile, start profile looked like and what the cliff looked like and using that to form a basis of whether they felt comfortable jumping a new cliff or not. Uh, some of the slightly more technically savvy ones would potentially use Excel to do the same thing, but either way, it was a very laborious process. And even the jumpers who were really dialed in and, and were doing these things on a regular basis, you're really only going to do that on a jump that's really marginal or is a particularly special jump that you want to know uh, before you go to evaluate. And I saw this and it seemed like I have a software development background. So it seemed like with some simple tools, it'd be really easy to make it so that users could upload their data to a website. It'll catalog all your jumps uh, and keep, the, keep a history of them in one place. Uh, and then pair that with data on the cliffs and the laser that's coming from the laser range finders and make it so that it doesn't need to be a laborious process. It doesn't necessarily even need to be a special jump. You can just do it on every jump, ideally, where you just go up to the exit point, you bring your laser range finder, as you mentioned, there's been a, a fairly recent innovation where laser rangefinders started to have Bluetooth chips inside of them. And this was something that was first observed by Hartman Rector. And he emailed me, he had been a baseline user for a while, and he said, hey, there's this new tool on the market. Uh, I think that if we can make this work well with baseline, it's going to open up some really interesting opportunities for jumpers. And so he had found that the UNI laser rangefinder uh, it was coming out of China, uh, but it, it had this really special property that it could pair with the phone. And so working with him, uh, we got a bunch of lasers, literally reverse engineered the Bluetooth protocol that they were using in order to, to get the data and integrated it into the baseline app so that we could walk up to the edge of a cliff. We've already recorded GPS data from previous base jumps, so you know what your start arc is going to look like. Uh, you go up to the edge of the cliff, you pair the laser with your phone, you shoot a bunch of measurements, as many as you want, uh, as ideally in a sort of straight line going out from the cliff. And you can just watch on the screen as it draws the cliff profile below where your tracks go. Uh, so this, this really opened up a lot of possibilities. It makes it really easy to see to visually what it looks like. A lot of jumpers over time will learn kind of what their start numbers look like. You know, will I clear 20 meters out at 100 meters down? Uh, you can start to get a sense of that over time if you jump enough and you look at numbers enough, but getting a visualization of that and seeing exactly where the pinch points are 
where is this going to be heads up? Is it going to be in the first couple seconds or is it going to be that ledge that I have to clear 20 seconds into the flight? Uh, being able to see that visually is really, really valuable and makes it more intuitive, I think, for everyone. Yeah, I agree. My old, uh, I guess, uh, my old workflow for this was I would do a single rangefinder measurement, uh, take a picture of it, and then do that over and over again, and then enter it into a spreadsheet that, that I would compare to uh, another spreadsheet. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hopefully I had remembered to download that spreadsheet to my phone or, or had it, uh, you know, some, some access. And then I would scroll through the different exits that I had measured and or my friends had measured because we shared a spreadsheet and then decide which exit profile looked as similar and then had, I guess it would be sort of an emotional um, comparison to how hard I thought that that exit was. And uh, I feel like this sort of just like cuts all that bullshit and goes right to exactly what you need. And I, I don't know how much experience you have opening exits, but, uh, you know, <laughs> It's kind of, it can be exhausting. The decision fatigue is real. You know, not only have you hiked for hours to get there potentially, but then, you know, uh, it's scary. Um, there's a lot of thought about how you're feeling, about what the cliff looks like. Uh, can you make it? Can you not? And um, this is a, I found it to be something just, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan already. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, and yeah, there, there is, there is a, Still some of what you're saying where I do think it's still important to kind of relate it back to cliffs that you've jumped before and, and kind of understanding that. But it makes it so much easier to understand where those those technical points are going to be. Uh, as I said, you know, is it going to be in the start? Is it going to be a ridge that you need to clear? Uh, at the start, especially, I think it's important for even even using, you know, the, the new Bluetooth lasers and all of those things. Uh, if I get a set of numbers, you know, using the example we said before, you know, 100 meters down, 20 meters out. Um, I can see on the data that I might clear it, but I also would caution people that you can't always completely trust the GPS data in the earliest parts of the jump, especially. Um, from a technical point of view, there's there's some reasons for that thing just on a basic level when you're standing on the cliff, you've got the whole sky of, of GPS satellites in view. As soon as you step off, you're gonna lose about half of those behind the cliff. Um, and so, the laser rangefinder, though, doesn't have that same limitation. The laser rangefinder, if you're using it correctly, uh, which is a big if there, but if you're using it correctly, it's very, very accurate in those first feet. And so what I'll often do when I'm going to a new exit point, whether it's new to me or actually a new exit opening, is I will go measure it with the laser and I'll look at it in comparison with my data tracks and I'll see where is the technical part. And then I'll often go Wait, back to my data. Can I stop you there for a second? Are you looking, yeah. you mean over the edge or are you looking at the data that you've collected? Uh, so after I've, I'll go to the edge, I'll measure the cliff uh, with the laser and then I'll look at it typically on my phone and I'll see where are the technical points? What are the things that I'm worried about? Am I worried about gliding to the landing zone and pulling high enough? Or am I worried about a ledge that's just below the start? And if, particularly if it's things like a ledge below the start, I'll try to relate that to another jump that I've done to get an idea of what the visual is gonna look like. Uh, because again, uh, the GPS data 
it's pretty accurate and things like the fly side are really amazing tools, but being able to relate that to something you've seen and done before is I think the best tool for, for the starts, especially. Can we package that up a little bit or dive a little deeper? So we have the tools, the laser range finder and the GPS. And what you're saying is that the GPS may not be the most accurate tool for measuring your start performance, uh, or while you should be relying more on the laser range finder. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and that's not to take away from the GPS data, but especially in the first couple seconds of the jump, that would definitely be my advice to people is I would trust the laser more than I would trust the GPS data in those first couple seconds. Okay. So let's get to some specifics because I think you have a good understanding of this. So you said that you lose about half of the connections to satellite as you jump off the cliff. How many satellites ideally do we need to be connected with to have a let's say an accurate reading or, or an accurate for, for what it is we're doing. So the minimum you need to be able to get a 3d GPS fix is four satellites, but that's not really good enough in practice, especially for what we're doing. Um, really you want as many as you can. Um, so with the fly site on a really good day, I think you'll typically be seeing something like 14 and maybe a couple of those will drop out after you exit and, and start your jump. Uh, some of the more modern GPSs and some of the things coming down the pipeline in the future uh, can support not just GPS, uh, the sort of the US GPS satellites, but also things like GLONASS and Galileo, which are the international ones. And so with some of the newer things that we're going to see, uh, I've seen as many as things like 27 satellites. And then it drops a little bit as you go through your flight. But the more satellites you have, the more, more view of the sky you have, the better your data is going to be. Okay, so does that data, when we go from 14 satellites to like seven or four, are we able to predict what our accuracy is? Does it go from like centimeters to meters or, or, or can we even think about it in that terms and those terms reliably? Yeah, and it does output things like the horizontal and vertical accuracy. You can see that data inside the FlySight files actually. Um, but when you get more satellites, and, you know, for example, I, with some of the, the fancy GPSs that, that have all of the, the support for the different satellites and all that, uh, I've seen data anomalies on deployment. And I started looking into this, and this was actually with uh, the FlySight 2 prototypes, uh, which are just now being tested. And it supports all the different satellite uh, networks. And so I was getting things like 27 satellites on this. And on deployment, I was seeing some squiggles in the data. And I thought that was weird or maybe even a glitch. But it was actually picking up so accurately the velocity, it seemed like it was picking up the, the, the movement of my head during deployment. <laughs> awesome. So it, it can be really, really good when you have like a lot of satellites and a good, good clean fix. Um, seven or less, I, I'd say is a little bit iffy though. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, let's talk about the FlySight 2 prototypes uh, in just a second. But first, I want to get back to because something you mentioned uh, regarding measuring accurately with uh, laser rangefinders. Do you have some um, expertise in that field? Uh, can you give us some best practices as far as like uh, potential pitfalls and, and, and other things that we can use to maximize our measuring capabilities? 
Yeah, I think there's a couple things, and this was one of the reasons I, I was excited uh, to be invited on the podcast was to talk about some of these things and get this information out into the community because I don't think everybody is necessarily doing everything right. Um, so there's a couple things. For one thing, which I'll definitely point out with the UNI lasers, is that they can enter a mode where you can adjust the horizon leveling. Uh, this is meant to be a thing which increases uh, your ability to, to the accuracy of the device. But if you set the horizon level as wrong, all of your numbers are going to come out also wrong because it's assuming that the cliff is steeper or more vertical than, uh, or, or less vertical than, than it might actually be. Um, I've seen even pretty experienced jumpers, uh, fumbling with this on a cliff. Um, fortunately it was able to figure it out and get it re-leveled and basically just by pointing at a point on the horizon, which is level, getting it re-leveled and then going and lasering. Uh, in that particular case, we were lucky that we had multiple people with multiple lasers and we were able to compare and, and see that, the, the measurements weren't making sense. Uh, but that's definitely something to watch out for, particularly with the UNI laser. I think you were talking to Will Mitchell on a previous episode, and he was even mentioning uh, kind of this same issue that comes up. And he would put a little piece of tape uh, in the battery of his laser, I think, that's to prevent right. that. Uh, and that's not a bad technique. There's there's lots of different ways to do it. And it's a little different with different lasers. Um, you know, there's the Sig Sauer lasers, the ATN, and, you know, there's there's the whole other brands. A lot of them don't have that same issue necessarily, or they can be recalibrated, but it's not as easy to do so accidentally. Um, but it, that's something that's just worth mentioning, I think, there, since a lot of the jumpers do have the UNI lasers. Um, you know, they're sold through the Squirrel website um, as, a, as a partnership with Hartman. So that, that's, I think, an important one to mention. But I do think there are a number of other things which people can either do wrong or, or should be aware of as they're shooting the laser. Can I, uh, can I, can we focus on that for a second too? Just cause, uh, I recently got, well, last year I got one and was just like blown away how light it is first off. And, uh, cause I went from, uh, forestry pro Nikon, which was a great laser, uh, obviously doesn't have anywhere near the range that the UNI does. Uh, and then also it doesn't have the Bluetooth capability, but, um, I, after talking to Will, I know, was wanted to make sure that that never happened and found like a piece of plastic to, to put in between the battery and the connection. And I also realized that some batteries provide a different amount of tolerance in that space there. So <laughs> it's really tight. Uh, you said that maybe there's some other techniques for, for protecting you against or from recalibrating your laser. What? What other techniques do you got? Um, so I haven't found a huge problem in the, I, I don't put a piece of tape. I don't typically put anything in my battery. Um, and I haven't personally found it to be a huge problem. The way that people get into trouble is if you long press, uh, I even forget now if it's the power button, the or power the, button, the, the, yeah. shoot, the shoot laser button. But basically if you long press that, it can recalibrate it. Um, in practice, I usually put mine just in sort of my outside mesh pocket and it hasn't really been an issue for me, but when I get to the top of a cliff, I always check it. So it's usually possible to find something either on the horizon or something straight down. Um, so if you're measuring the very, very first point of, uh, the cliff and it's ideally effectively just the rock drop. So it's pretty much just straight below you. This isn't always possible with every cliff, but, uh, when it is, you can do that. And that's a pretty good sanity check to see if, 
your laser is reasonably well calibrated if that comes up on the screen as having you know pretty much only vertical component and not really much horizontal component. Can you can you walk that even back a little bit farther for us techno dum dums? Like when you shoot that vertical line, do you, is there a minimum distance that we need to be aware of? Like we can't like in four meters, right? We need something like fifty or or, or farther. Um, I don't remember exactly what the minimum limit is on the various lasers, but I am usually able to test it even just in my room, in my house. So it's probably on the order of three or four meters is enough. Maybe a little bit more than that, 10, something like that, but it's not 50. You can, you can do it in less than that. Okay. So we don't have to get crazy and like mount it on a a survey tripod with the, you know, bubble level and uh, all that stuff. We can... We can calibrate it if needed uh, on at, by eye, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah, and well, you know, take that with you, you know, at, with, at your own risk, right? Um, but the, if you go if you go to the uh, Squirrel website on the laser page, actually, Hart, uh, Hartman did an analysis of what happens if you're off on your laser angle by one degree, two degrees, three degrees, and it does make a difference, but it doesn't make a huge difference Um, or at least hopefully you're not jumping jumps that the margin is so thin that, you know, a couple feet or a couple meters here or there are going to be the difference between life or death. Uh, If you are jumping jumps like that, first of all, it's going to be so conditions dependent uh, that, you know, the, the cliff is probably secondary almost to how good are the conditions. Um, But also you better really be dialed in your techniques, knowing how your laser works, knowing how to calibrate it and knowing that you're going to get accurate data. Um, But if you're jumping things where, you know, there is still some margin and you're jumping within your limits, uh, I think that that's a reasonable approach to calibration. Okay. Will also mentioned using a leveling app. The, so placing it on the phone, finding level, placing it on the phone, and uh, and then shooting it and measuring it from from that, uh, is that something that you would recommend? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good idea. Uh, I had forgotten about that one, but yeah, I like that trick. Okay, I think that also that the Unai isn't actually flat or level on the bottom too, so you sort of have to like uh, adjust to that as well. I, I think Will was telling us that. Yeah, I could see that. That's that's something we've been trying to work with them on. Uh, Hartman and I have been emailing with them, trying to get them to, to maybe even make a base specific firmware. Uh, haven't haven't quite gotten there yet, but <laughs> can we go back to what we can do with some of the data that we collect? Uh, there's this overlay track data on Google Earth function that's pretty interesting. And if uh, you're listening and haven't seen this before, it's basically you can take the data that you've collected with your fly site or GPS, and you can put that, or you can see that where you jumped, and it creates like a bell-shaped image of the possible flight paths that you can take. This is pretty interesting because what the, what you can do is like potentially do a max glide flight from an exit point and then see all the possible lines that you could fly, right? Is that something that you can then, that data or that bell, can you take that and put it somewhere else so that you can see potentially what's possible at a, at a different exit point? Yeah. So this is one of my favorite features of baseline. And this one I can actually say uh, is not just 
taking something that someone else did and making it more efficient. This is actually something which I've never seen uh, prior to baseline doing it. And as you mentioned, what it can do is it takes uh, a given data track, uh, base jump, you could go to Brento, you could go wherever, you could do a max glide flight, or maybe it's not even a max glide flight. Maybe, you know, it's it's with a turn on the hill and it's flying along a wall, uh, you know, at Lauterbrunnen or something like that. Uh, but you can take that track and you can open it at the current track and you can do that rotation that you were talking about. So it does a cylindrical rotation of your track, which basically means if you took the track that you flew and you flew it five degrees to the right, 10 degrees to the right, 15 degrees to the right, and vice versa to the left, uh, it creates this shape. As you mentioned, it looks a little bit like a bell. And it basically shows you where you could possibly reach and where you could fly uh, the available flight envelope uh, if you flew it a different direction. Um, and there's a second feature uh, which allows you to take a track. Uh, again, maybe you go to somewhere nice and safe like Rento. You do a reasonable short start, and you just go in a max glide flight out as far as you can. You can take that track and relocate it to a new location. And you can see, what would my jump look like at this new location? And it'll open it in Google Earth uh, so that you can visualize in 3D. This is... Uh, a, a really sort of unique feature to baseline and it's very useful. I actually use this all the time in real world base jumping. When I'm going to a new site, I want to evaluate, am I going to be able to make it to a distant landing zone in particular? That's, that's a really important one. Um, it's also really valuable for, you know, will I be able to clear a ledge in flight? Uh, things like that. So, there's a caveat here, so you know a warning uh, and a disclaimer, which is that you can't always test uh, trust the Google Earth data. It's pretty good, like it's really good these days in a lot of different places, um, and it gives a really good indicator. And so I do use this all the time, and and it's often very very accurate. Um, but that being said, it, it's really more of a guideline in that sense. You know, you can't always trust that Google Earth is going to have the exact right elevations and, and altitudes and terrains. Um, when you start talking about things like evaluating a distant landing zone, it's pretty good. When you're talking about things that are in steep terrain, that's where it gets a little bit iffier. Um, but again, from a just visualizing and sort of putting yourself in that headspace of what is this jump going to look like? You know, where am I going to be in flight? Um, where am I going to be on the train? Uh, it's really, really valuable for that. Are you able to open it in any other map um, services besides um, Google Earth? Because here in France and uh, next door in Switzerland, we have these like super precise maps that we can use online. Uh, there's various different measuring tools uh, that we can use on those websites. And for me... I haven't used Google Earth that much just because these maps are so precise that um, I'm wondering, can I upload uh, these this data to those maps or can I incorporate it in that? Uh, I guess I'm not sure which software you're talking about there, um, but I would certainly be interested in it. I mean, anything that can get better data and better access to that data and tools for base jumpers is something I'm very interested in. Okay, cool. Well, uh, we'll talk about it offline then. <laughs> Definitely. Um, in the website, there is a, a tool called CCM, which is like Google Earth, but it's basically a web-based version of that. Um, so that's also available on, on Baseline. Um, but Google, Google Earth has a lot of good things about it. So that, okay. that's often what I use. And like you said, it's not 
precise in certain aspects. And so just using it as a general guideline uh, perhaps is is just like the best uh, way to think about it anyway, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And it also assumes that you know accurately where the exit point is. Uh, Oftentimes I'll be doing this as sort of a a pre-evaluation of a jump. If I'm about to go hike up a peak uh, that's never been jumped before, um, I might know generally what the summit elevation and latitude longitude is, but I don't necessarily know exactly where I'm going to jump from. Uh, so oftentimes I'll, I'll do use this track relocate function. I'll take one of my sort of middle of the road tracks. And what I mean by that is not necessarily my absolute best flight in killer conditions and also not necessarily my worst flight. Um, although there's something to be said for maybe using your worst flight. Um, but you know, well, I, I should actually clarify that. Your worst flight is usually not going to be something where you slipped on the exit and totally blew it. I mean, in some cases, that certainly happens. But it may also just be that for a lot of your data, it's a big jump. And so you exit, and then you start diving very quickly off the exit. Um, And that's not necessarily representative of what your performance is going to be either. So what I try to do is pick a track that is pretty middle of the road, that I feel like I am confident that I can do that fairly repeatedly, assuming that conditions and everything goes in my favor. And then I'll take a track like that and I'll relocate it to the top of a mountain that I'm thinking of hiking up to. It's not perfect. I don't necessarily know exactly the latitude, longitude, and altitude before I get there, but it'll give me a sense of, you know, especially, so I live in Washington uh, in the Northwest United States, and we have a lot of trees. Uh, honestly, we have a ton of really great mountains. We have a shortage of landing zones. And so it's, it's particularly useful in those sort of situations to see where am I going to be able to get to an open area and how high above that area am I going to be to deploy? Okay, cool. This is sort of circling back, but I also wanted to talk about best practices for lasers, um, some limiting factors, right? Um, because you mentioned trees. So like, shooting to the tops of trees may not give you the best data. Um, if there's uh, speaking of the Pacific Northwest, if there's some humidity in the air, if the rocks have snow on them or wet, or can you tell us a little bit about some of the limiting factors, uh, environmental factors we, we can expect while using laser rangefinders? Yeah, that can definitely be a challenge. Um, trees, you never know necessarily if you're hitting exactly the right spot. Is it hitting the tree? Is it going through it? Uh, that's assuming you even get a, a lock on the laser. Oftentimes with trees, it just won't even return a measurement. So you kind of do have to pick rocks and solid objects where possible. Um, typically at the start, that's not going to be a huge problem. That's usually mostly going to be rocks and cliffs and things like that. Um, not always. Uh, and I know there's some jumps, you know, uh, that, that Will Mitchell and others have done, which, you know, pretty much go straight into trees and things like that. But, uh, in general, it hasn't been too bad. I don't think humidity and all of that makes too much of a difference. Um, in my experience, um, certainly some, I'm sure, um, if it creates a completely anomalous reading, like if there's fog, I'll sometimes just get crazy measurements. You know, you do need to watch out and make sure that it looks like a cliff profile and that it's returning sensible data. Um, but in general, that that's not too bad. What I do see, though, sometimes is people looking for solid objects that they can laser in the flight path and then not lasering in a straight line as a result of it. Uh, that can lead to uh, problems in the measurements. 
in general, you want to shoot in as straight of a line as possible directly, you know, in line with the flight that you're going to do. If you're moving left and right, if you're yawing left and right with the laser as you're shooting it, that's going to give a false measurement of what the cliff looks like. Um, and I see people doing that a lot. Okay. So like when you're shaking with fear at the exit point, uh, measuring <laughs> that you may, you may want to like wait till you calm down a little bit is what you're saying. Uh, well, I mean, I suppose there's that, but no, what I was actually talking about more is like, if you're standing above, uh, a cool wire that curves to the left or right, um, if you shoot a series of points that follow the curve of that Canyon, uh, that's going to give a false impression of what the cliff looks like. And it's actually going to be more dangerous uh, than you think it's going to be because it's going to essentially shorten up the distance of some of those later measurements because you're taking you know, the straight line distance. But in flight, you're going to have to be following the contour of the canyon. And so that's a longer path that you need to fly. Uh, and also in wingsuits, we're going to be losing even more altitude when you're turning. Uh, that's interesting because I think that's a mistake that I've done regularly because I'll think, okay, I want to measure what the path of least resistance is. And so I'll follow the contours. And what you're saying is, is that's not, that's giving a false data. Yep. Yeah. That, okay. that can be risky. Um, and you know, there's, there's a question of how much of a difference that makes in a lot of sort of realistic circumstances, but it is reducing margin there. Okay, good. Good to know. Um, another thing that people I see doing wrong with the lasering is they only laser the points that they think are going to be the most technical or the, the issue points for them. Um, you could imagine that being the edge of a ledge that you need to clear. It's actually pretty important that you also la laser the back edge of the, the ledge. Um, so shoot straight down and then also shoot out at the edge of the ledge. And then if there's another sort of stair step of ledges, try to shoot the back of the, the next ledge and then also the, the front of it. If you miss those back points, it's gonna give you a you know not accurate perception of the cliff. Uh, and I, I see people missing that a lot. That's generally gonna make people more conservative, uh, not less. So it's a little bit less risky in that regard. But you know, you could imagine you have the start arc where where you start going vertical and then you start flying after a couple of seconds and there's a curve there. If you only measure the edge of sort of the first big ledge that you need to clear, uh, you're just going to see a sort of straight diagonal line going out to the edge of that cliff. But actually, you've got some airspace in there. Um, so it really helps to kind of pick a pick a heading, a straight line with the laser, and then just shoot as many points as you can. Um, but it's not just you know the the choke points. Okay. That's a really good tip. Thanks. Uh, another thing that I've been doing wrong. Um, so what I've been doing also, and maybe um, you can help me uh, get a better workflow for this, is I've been you know, sort of used to only getting about 200 meters worth of data. Uh, and now with the UNI, it, I mean, what's the workable range with that rangefinder? Um, it, the accuracy does decrease as you get farther out. Um, I also think it's usually going to be less critical as you get farther out, uh, depending on the jump, uh, just because after the first couple hundred meters, you're going to be flying, uh, you know, you're going to be at full terminal velocity and full glide. Uh, there's certainly obstacles and things that you may need to know, am I going to clear that or not? But they're usually far enough out that it's not as much of a laser problem as maybe I would be using the, the track relocate function or, or looking at things from that perspective. Um, 
the new the new laser rangefinders they can go much farther, and that is super valuable to be able to do that. Um, I would take it with a grain of salt once you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of meters away, you know, pushing thousands of meters away. But also, hopefully, you don't have too so much margin that it's a difference of just a couple meters by the time you're forty seconds into the flight. <laughs> okay. So then, what I what I'm getting from you saying now. What I'm getting from this is that I want to take as many points as possible, getting all the little contours of the cliff while I'm there. And then when I'm shooting farther and farther out, I'm going to be getting less accurate data. But then I can also use that data almost what to what? 2,000 meters, 1,000 meters? How far out can I get to compare it to uh, previous flight paths that, um, or flight tracks? to get an evaluation while on site? Uh, I don't know exactly where the hard limit is on these, uh, to be honest. Um, out to, you know, a thousand meters is totally plausible with a lot of these lasers. Um, but again, that's usually, the laser is especially useful, I think, in the start, the start okay. of the flight. Um, that's where you get the most accurate data uh, for you know the very beginning of the flight. Am, are, am I going to be able to be pushing over a ledge? Am I going to clear this? Am I going to get out of this bowl? Um, once you start talking about later in the flight, you know, you're probably not going to be as critical on the laser. Um, and so the fact that a little bit of calibration error or a little bit of distance error or, or anything like that is hopefully not going to be as critical when you're much later in the flight. Okay. Yeah. In the past, I've always used the laser rangefinder for the start within the first 200 meters, and then everything else has been measured on a map. Uh, that's where I felt most confident um, yeah, getting my I'm data. Definitely in, yeah, I'm definitely in agreement that that's, that's the kind of, of right approach there, is that often once you're talking about things that are outside the range of a laser, the map is going to be more than accurate enough, and so that's what I'll often do. Okay. I'm excited to hear about um, what you've been doing with um, the latest version of FlySight. Can you tell us a little bit more what's going on there? Yeah. So this, this is pretty exciting. Uh, and I can, I can only preview a little bit uh, what, what's happening. But you know, I've been trying to build with Baseline sort of the ultimate base jumping software. And you know, when Hartman and Squirrel came uh, with the, the Bluetooth Razor rangefinders, that bridged a really big gap. Uh, in being able to have sort of the perfect hardware for base jumping as far as the laser goes. Um, the FlySight one is very interesting. It's been a staple of the base and skydiving communities. Uh, it's made by a guy named Michael Cooper. Um, I've looked at a lot of GPS data, probably more looked at more base jumping and skydiving GPS data than anyone on earth. And the FlySight one gives the best data of any GPS unit I've ever seen. Um, I'm not saying that there aren't, you know, super expensive commercial ones out there that might beat it, but it's really remarkable how good the data quality of the FlySight one is. So Michael Cooper has been working on developing the next version of that for a while. And I've been lucky enough to have, uh, be one of the prototype testers of the FlySight too. And it is really, there's a couple things that I really excited about it. Uh, I mentioned earlier that one of the things that is probably the most exciting is that it supports not just GPS, but Galileo and GLONASS GPS constellations. That gives us better data than ever. 
Uh, it gives us a better GPS lock. It gives us more accuracy on the position, on the speed, on everything. Uh, so, and that, that's really ultimately the most important thing. Data quality is everything for what we're doing. Our, we're literally putting our lives on the line based on this data. So all that matters is data quality. I used to actually recommend another uh, GPS unit that was called the XGPS. I used it for many years. It does produce good data, but ultimately I don't actually really recommend that anymore to people because the fly site gives better data. What is the X, uh, what's the XGPS? Is that what it's called? Yeah. So the XGPS is, is an interesting device. It was just an off the shelf sort of GPS. It wasn't specific to base jumping or skydiving, but it had one really killer feature that the fly site one didn't. And that is that it had Bluetooth. It had wireless connectivity. So anybody who's used the FlySight knows that it doesn't, it's you know, a pretty old school device in a lot of ways. Uh, it doesn't have wireless capabilities. It's got you know, mini USB port that nobody really uses anymore, um, all these sorts of things. And so when I'm, I was building the baseline app, like the mobile Android app, uh, I couldn't really use the FlySight one particularly. Um, pretty much the only way you could use it is you would record your data, whether it's skydive or a base jump, when you got home, you go to your laptop, offload the files from your fly site, and analyze them using whatever tools you want, hopefully baseline. Um, but what I really wanted to do was I wanted to be able to do things like when I'm in a skydive, I want to have live data streaming from the GPS on my helmet to my phone so that I can have live data recording on the phone. I can do audible feedback. I can you know, detect landing, things like that, so that it can automatically upload the track as soon as you land. So with the XGPS, I was able to do that um, because it had this wireless capability. But ultimately, if the data quality is not as good as the FlySight, I personally stopped using it in favor of the FlySight. Okay, cool. Good to know. So back to the FlySight 2 prototype. Uh, what other, I mean, so just more accurate data and then Bluetooth connectivity. This is both yep. also like very exciting. But with that connectivity now, what you're saying is is that you're, it's going to increase our ability to have real-time feedback. And I'm assuming then with baseline, you're going to have even more control of the kind of feedback that you're getting. Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly what it's going to facilitate is that I think we'll finally have the perfect GPS hardware. Uh, to go with the baseline software uh, when the FlySight 2 comes out because it'll have this fantastic data quality. It'll have the wireless connectivity. So when you have a wireless GPS device, and this worked really nicely with the XGPS, um, and uh, I've never been able to get quite the same experience with FlySight because of the limitations, is that you know when I go for a jump, I start recording my data casually when I'm gearing up. I walk up to the exit point. I do my jump. Or if I'm in the sky, I jump out of the plane, I do my jump. And the baseline app itself will detect landing. And so when the jump is done, it already has all the data. It detects that I'm on the ground after having done a jump. And it'll upload it to the baseline.ws website. So by the time I'm back at home or back at the hangar, uh, my data is already there ready to be compared. Um, that's one of the like really nice workflows that you can get from having this wireless capability. Oh, that's exciting. That I, I honestly I don't enjoy the part of plugging the fly site into the computer, transferring the files, and, and all that part. If it's just streamlined, uh, that's going to make it more convenient and repeatable for me. Uh, I'm, I'm excited for that. Anything else uh, that you're excited about with the the fly site too? 
Yeah, those are the big ones, but there are honestly just some little touches which I'm really stoked about. Um, one of which is they switched from mini USB to USB-C, so that's going to make it a lot easier for charging and for getting the data off if you're not using the wireless. Uh, and also, it seems like kind of a minor point, but having a soft power button instead of the, the slide switch from the FlySight One, um, I think that's going to facilitate uh, some really nice things like, for example, we mentioned being able to do landing detection or even just having like an automatic turn off after an hour of recording, because I'm sure I'm not the only person who has gone for a jump, turned on my fly site before jumping, landed, been, you know, stoked, high-fiving my friends, shoved my helmet into my stash bag, and then six hours later, I realized that I killed the battery and I recorded a bunch of junk data. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely been there. So what got you inspired to, to do all of this? Yeah, so originally I saw a video on YouTube of people doing the wingsuit base thing and immediately just something clicked with me that that was what I needed to do, whatever it was going to take to do that. Uh, so not long after, um, I signed up for my AFF, uh, went through my AFF progression uh, at El Skydive Elsinore uh, and was starting to rack up jumps. But this whole time, uh, looking forward to eventually doing wingsuit base. And I got lucky in that pretty early on in the progression, there was a wingsuit competition meet at Elsinore. And they brought in Michael Cooper from Flysight and Klaus from Paralog. And uh, I was one of the, the co-judges, I guess, of the competition. So I got to see the behind the scenes of how people were using Flysights on wingsuits in the real world, uh, how they were being analyzed um, at the time using the Flysight viewer software, and just kind of getting a glimpse into that world. And that was my first exposure to that and where I sort of got inspired to say, hey, maybe I can use my software development background and, and my skills to contribute something to the community to basically make this analysis easier um, and you know, really tailored to sort of the base jumping use case. So that was when I started working on Baseline was over 10 years ago. It was 10 years ago in July of this year, actually. Okay, so that was even before you started base jumping, you were developing the software. Yep, yep. It was before I actually started base jumping. And so in the very earliest versions, you can see some evidence of that where, you know, <laughs> you opened it up and the very first thing you saw was a big like skydiving style altimeter face and, right. uh, you know, things like that. Uh, it, it's evolved a fair amount since then. And, you know, since I, I did my first base jumping course, I learned to become a wingsuiter. You know, now I've, I've progressed through that where, you know, I'm going and wingsuit base jumping around the world. And throughout those sort of 10 years of development of this software, it's evolved a lot to solve, in many cases, the problems that I was facing as a jumper at the time. Um, and, you know, what I've heard and, and from conversation with other jumpers of what they need to do. So it's been a collaboration between, you know, myself and many other jumpers. And, and I really appreciate when people come to me with ideas and feedback or even just questions saying, you know, hey, I've got this problem that I'm trying to solve or this jump I'm trying to figure out. Uh, you know, I'm looking for a tool that can do X. Um, and, you know, that's led to a lot of the best features in Baseline. You know, it started out as an Android app. Um, and Android app still exists. And um, since I'm sure uh, many listeners here will have things like iPhones, I've heard it a million times. Hey, when are you going to make an iPhone version? Um, maybe one day. I used to be more skeptical. I've heard it enough now that, that maybe one day something will happen there. Um, but 
overall, it's actually kind of shifted focus where it's not really about the Android app anymore. It's really more about the website, uh, baseline.ws. Um, that ends up being where the majority of users are, where people spend the majority of their time. Um, and I think ultimately provides actually the majority of the value in baseline. Uh, I think that the app has become most useful for the laser use case where you're rocking up to an exit point, you're measuring it with the laser, uh, and, you know, sort of watching it draw that data. But for most other use cases, I see people using the website a lot more. Hmm. You know, the, that whole phone and, and app problem, because I'm an iPhone user as well, sort of detracted me from using it uh, in the past. And recently, when I was with a friend who uses it, she just has a cheap Android phone that she spent 20 bucks on. And it's light. It, it weighs nothing. And she just slides it inside the case with her laser. And uh, she just pulls it up, powers it on when she's going to use the laser and uses it to collect the data. And then when she has uh, Wi-Fi later, uh, links up with uh, baseline. And I was like, oh, wow, what a simple solution. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's another option. Yeah, it's not. I've heard of jumpers doing that, and the reality is a Uni is very light, as you mentioned, and a Uni plus a cheap Android phone is often going to be less than a Forestry Pro, and so it, it's not crazy to to bring both of those up in many cases. Um, that being said, uh, I think one of the things that that's been more compelling as an argument to me is that, and you know, this is not a promise to the audience or anything, but. Uh, I could see the case for having an iPhone version specifically for the laser rangefinder. Um, maybe it's even the stripped down version of baseline where that's most of what it can do. Uh, and then you go to the website for analysis. Um, because like I said, I think that's the most compelling single feature of baseline there that there's really not an alternative for. And so I, I could almost be convinced for an iPhone version of that. But okay, please. I should mention that. Please, you know, please. <laughs> I, I should mention here, uh, you know, when people ask for this, like, this has been literally years of work and effort in my free time. I have a day job. Uh, you know, I build baseline out of love for the sport and just wanting this to exist. And so creating another iPhone version for a tool that's free um, and given away, just donations only, uh, it, it adds a lot of work. But ultimately, I do think that, you know, it is something that could really benefit the community. And I understand not wanting to carry uh, an extra device up a mountain unnecessarily. So we'll, we'll see what the future brings on that front. Okay. Well, I mean, thank you first off, like for, for doing this because it's uh, it does look like a very super useful tool. And like I said before, I haven't been like using it a lot, but uh, the little exposure that I have uh, makes me think that this is going to be my preferred uh, route or use for it. Uh, going into like specifics, um, maybe you could give me some tips. Like uh, I'm a little bit short on time. You know, I've got a family, I've got a full-time job and a bunch of hobbies and, uh, you know, my time is limited and uh, I've got a bunch of new suits and I want to test the maximum glide, right? And so like speed to fly is kind of like a challenging one for determining what a suit's best glide possibilities are right how can yeah. i use baseline to sort of streamline my training process yeah so i think that we should first clarify that there's different things you might be optimizing for uh there's things like performance comps um so you know glide in, in the performance competitions uh, that's not something that i've ever focused on as a major use case 
people do absolutely use baseline to analyze their tracks and, and look at that and use it for things like real time feedback in flight using the app. Um, but generally speaking, um, I've been much more focused on the base jumping scenario than the competition scenario. Uh, so then there's a question of, you know, are you talking about getting the best start, getting the maximum separation from the cliff on the start? Uh, you know, what is your you know, best glide once you're at terminal velocity and you're just flying uh, and, you know, trying to make a distant landing zone or trying to clear a ridge? Uh, and, you know, then there, there's also questions about, you know, how effective is your flare going to be um, and things like that. Um, so I would say, though, the training starts in the sky. Um, and I fully recognize that even though, you know, I'm really focused on the base jumping scenario. Like I do, you know, hundreds of skydives a year, uh, and that's where the majority of your training is going to be. So if you have, uh, either a fly site one and you've got, you know, the audio cable coming out of the fly site one, or if you're using an X GPS paired with the, the baseline app, or, uh, if it's in the future and you're using a fly site two paired with the baseline app, what you can do is you can go up in a skydive and set the audio feedback into glide mode or horizontal speed mode or vertical speed or total speed mode. And you can do jumps and you can learn uh, instinctively, ideally, uh, what is your position for best glide. And I think that is a really important thing for every base jumper to do, for that to be almost your default position that you just go to. Um, and that takes a lot of training in the sky. The majority of my skydives where I have audio feedback, I'm going to be focusing on glide ratio. Um, sometimes I'll do things like speed runs uh, where I'll you know be listening to the speed. But overall, in base jumping, the majority of the time, if you're really concerned about your body position and, and, you know, really dialing in the suit, stretching it out perfectly and having everything, you know, where it should be, uh, the max glide is probably what you want to focus on. Um, you made the point about speed to fly. There is some slight variation there about how, what angle of attack or, you know, how fast you want to be flying in a given conditions, but you can get pretty close, uh, to just the sort of the default best glide position. Um, and even in the sky, if you've got wind that you're fighting and things like that, and the, you know, the GPS is going to be reporting your GPS speed, not your airspeed. Um, but it's still like a good approximation of what is that position for best glide and that position, you know, flight configuration for best glide is I'm going to oversimplify a little bit here, but it's generally going to be what you want to be doing at the start to get the best separation. And in flight, on most flights, you're probably not going to be going for absolute max glide, if, especially if, certainly if you're terrain flying. Uh, you're going to be diving. You're going to be going fast. But it's base jumping. Things happen. And if things do happen, if you're not quite getting the distance, maybe there's a downdraft on exit. Maybe you just aren't performing as well. And now you're suddenly worried, am I going to clear that ridge? Am I going to make it back to my LZ? It should be really instinctive how you get to that maximum glide configuration. So one thing that I've uh, learned from flying um, the glider recently, for example, is that I instinctually go to something that's slower than is going to be ideal. Um, and perhaps that's the way that the suit is trimmed. Maybe that's what I'm trying to, maybe I'm trying too hard to get more glide out of it. But how could I use baseline to figure out, okay, this is the speed that I want um for like in we can just say for in a training scenario so either from an easy cliff or from skydiving um i would use the audible feedback to say okay here i'm hitting 150 kilometers per hour 
this is my ideal speed? And, and how would I come to, to realize that that's the ideal speed? Um, yeah, so in the sky, you can use the audible feedback and then you can just kind of play with it. You can adjust your angle of attack, your body position, your shoulders, your toes, all of those things until you just maximize that number. Um, one thing though that I think is kind of a useful thing to talk about is the speed chart on baseline. So when you upload a track, um, there's a couple of views. There's a map, there's a time chart that shows sort of your speed and your glide and your things where time is the horizontal axis. There's a distance chart, which shows uh, effectively your start arc, basically just side profile view of the jump. And then there's the speed chart. I think it's an underappreciated chart by a lot of jumpers. At this point, looking at having looked at literally tens of thousands of data tracks and, and GPS tracks on, on baseline, it's where my eyes go first, actually, when I upload a track, is I look at the speed chart. And what the speed chart shows, uh, for those who aren't familiar, on the horizontal axis, it shows your horizontal speed. And on the vertical axis, it shows your vertical speed. Uh, this is sometimes known as a polar chart. Um, there's some nuance there uh, because we're, we're talking about sort of instantaneous speeds. It's not your sustained speeds, which would be the more classic sort of polar curve that you may have heard of. Um, but looking at the speed chart at a glance tells you everything about a jump if you know how to read it. It shows you how the start went, um, how you converted the vertical speed of falling into a horizontal speed. Uh, it shows where you hung out in flight for the majority of the jump. It shows how effective your flare was, uh, how, how well you converted your speed into a flare, um, and where you transitioned into canopy flight. Um, and what's really interesting about it is that for a given point on that chart, you can see immediately what was your vertical speed, what was your horizontal speed, what was your total speed, which is the hypotenuse essentially, um, and it shows the glide ratio. Um, and so, after I go do a jump, I'll look at that and it's often very clear, uh, oh, I was kind of hanging out closer to two to one glide or 2.5 to one glide. Um, maybe that means I was either diving a little too much or as you're saying, going a little bit too slow. And actually you can go a little bit faster and you can see where it would push up uh, that, that glide ratio. And so on, a, you know, this can often be conditions dependent. So take it with a grain of salt. Um, but you know, you can see on the flights where you're really holding at, you know, three to one plus, and you can see kind of, you know, what was my horizontal speed? What was my vertical speed there? Uh, and then you can use that and you can remember that jump and, and try to figure out, you know, okay, what was I doing there? What was my flight configuration? What was I hearing, um, you know, in, in my helmet or whatever? Um, that's, that's often how I'll sort of judge myself. Like, was I flying in my best glide position for a particular base jump? Okay, cool. That's some really good tips right there. So I'll look at the, spend more time looking at that speed chart. And, uh, you know, to be honest, um, again, for a techno dum-dum like me, it, uh, it's a little bit intimidating, that chart. Uh, uh, it, it takes a little bit of repetition, I think, to become more familiar with uh, what you're looking for. Yeah, I, I definitely see that. And, and that's why I kind of want to emphasize that is that as somebody who's looked at a lot of this, that has become my most important chart, but I don't think it's where people put a lot of their attention. Um, and I think that that is in many ways, like the best thing that you could look at if you really want to understand uh, what your flight configuration was at different points in the jump. And it's super helpful for optimizing your flare. Okay, cool. Can I ask you a question that brisks sounding like a, a stoner question? 
um, how far are we from heads-up display uh, incorporated with augmented reality for flying uh, terrain and uh, potentially like uh, races against each other? Um, so I, I will say I've probably done more skydives with Google glass on than anyone on earth. Uh, and the goal was essentially what you're describing of trying to have a heads up display. Uh, that being said, I don't know that the hardware is there yet. Um, not because I think that the hardware in general doesn't exist. If you look at stuff like the Oculus or things like that, there's really impressive VR and augmented reality headsets and things out there, but it's not perfectly suited for our use case. It's bulky or it requires big batteries or a whole computer to drive it in some cases. Um, so I've been dreaming of the day that that will come into existence and, when the right hardware is there, um, it's probably something that I'll investigate. Um, in the meantime, uh, I have done the Google Glass thing. I've gotten, what's nice about that is that Google Glass runs Android, so it didn't actually take that much work to get baseline features running on Google Glass. And actually, the m- most valuable thing that I found was putting up the speed chart, a live version of the speed chart, um, because with a normal audio feedback, you kind of have to choose. You have to choose either your glide ratio, you have to choose your horizontal speed, total speed, whatever. Um, but none of those tells the whole picture. Um, you know, it's easy to make your glide ratio look better by just slowly flaring and bleeding off a little bit of speed. Um, that's the easiest way to impre- increase your your instantaneous glide ratio. Um, and if you just have one measure uh, in your ear, you're not going to know if you're doing that. If you can have a heads-up display that actually shows, uh, you know, am I trading off speed for glide? Uh, am I slowly accelerating? Am I doing all of this? Um, that I found to be really, really interesting. And it's also, again, really, really valuable on the flare. Um, I've had one or two people uh, run the prototype of the Google Glass version of Baseline, but I can't say I recommend it for the public at large. <laughs> okay. I was really hoping you were going to say, yeah, it's coming out next year. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, you get, if you I get think, me the hardware, <laughs> I think that this is like really the next evolutionary step in wingsuit flying. You know, I see what, I see what Red Bull aces did for suit technology and motivation and even skills. I mean, training for those races was, for me, by far the best learning experience in wingsuit flying, period. But then also, I think it really keyed everyone into some techniques of how to fly faster and, and better and all around. And if we were to sort of democratize that experience by being able to have these races in the sky that we could compare with people around the world, man, that's going to be an exciting day. Yeah, I think, I think that would be really cool. And it would let you get a level of repetition and, and, you know, evaluate, you know, simulated terrain flying, uh, is something that's, there's really no great way to do. Um, there's a lot of great tools that have come out, um, things like the wingsuit tunnel, but fundamentally that's, that's not, exactly preparation for the kinds of things that we want to do. And if you had an augmented reality sort of heads up display, I do think that there's a lot of cool things you could do and it would just make it, you know, more fun and more safe to go train these things in the sky. Uh, and then I think that could be a huge level up. 
Absolutely. You know, we spoke about uh, baselines ethos, uh, like uh, what you, how you feel about uh, what you've done and, and how you would like people to move forward with this technology. Could you share that with us again? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's a bunch of tools and software out there that people use to, to analyze their jumps and things like that. And, and there's some different choices that have been made by the different people. Um, so there's baseline, uh, there's base beta, uh, which is kind of like a climbing guidebook of exit points. Uh, there's sky derby, uh, which is kind of like the Russian version of baseline, but they've also focused a lot more on the skydiving and the competition aspect. Uh, and then there's things, local tools, things like the FlySight viewer, which kind of do none of that. Um, and so I chose some of the choices I've made in baseline, things like there is no public public tracks uh, at all in baseline on the website. You can't mark a track as public. It's just always private to you. Um, there's no competition boards. There's no leaderboards. Um, and the reason that I chose to do that for baseline is fundamentally, I think it's only a competition against yourself. Uh, and it's really, everything comes down to your own numbers and your own data as evaluated against the jumps that you want to do. Um, and so for things like Sky Derby, you know, they focused a lot on the competition angle. Um, and I think that's great. I think that the competition brings good things to our sport, especially in the sort of the skydiving uh, arena. Um, but it's just not where I wanted to focus, especially with a tool that was really designed to be tailored around base jumping. Um, even in, you know, two different people, even of similar height and similar weight and in the same suit are not going to perform the same. Uh, you know, there, there's just the amount of skill and, and experience that they have and, you know, everything that goes into that. And so frankly, you know, I, I don't want, baseline to become a dick measuring contest. Like I want it to be a tool for analyzing your own performance and, you know, understanding your own limits. Um, and so that's where, you know, who knows what the future will hold, you know, maybe that, you know, it's going to evolve and I'm going to continue adding new features and I want to, you know, add things that enable people to do more jumps and more safely. Uh, and if that eventually means, you know, having public tracks or public leaderboards, like, you know, maybe it'll happen. Um, but overall, that's kind of not the, the direction that I've wanted to go with it. Um, there's another question, which is about exit locations. Um, and this has been sort of a big debate in the history of, of base jumping. Um, you know, the basejumper.com forums, uh, you know, you weren't allowed to mention location of jumps, you know, even Brento and stuff like that. Uh, you know, I think people Italy around... terminal wall. <laughs> Remember that? Wow. Yeah. That's like another era now. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, I, I think most people have moved on from that. I mean, many countries just have their own base wikis, right? Spain and French have topos where they just publicly share exit information. And I think overall, it hasn't been a bad thing for the sport. Um, you know, I think that it, you draw analogy to things like climbing or backcountry skiing and snowboarding, you know, like the existence of guides hasn't ruined those sports. Um, and you know, maybe back in the day when there were fewer known places that people could jump and, you know, the number of places that you could get a wingsuit flying were, you know, you could count on one hand because we needed really big walls and people didn't really know the details. You know, we're kind of in a new era now where there's literally thousands of wingsuit base jumps around the world. Um, and so 
it's obviously preferable if we don't burn objects and that, you know, some of the really prime objects that are great for training beginners, things like Lauterbrunn and things like Brento, like we do need to protect those, but you don't protect it by not showing the exit coordinates. Um, like everybody knows where these things are uh, for, you know, Norway or Switzerland or Brento or things like that. Anyone can go on YouTube and sort of reverse engineer where a jump is. Um, so that, that's been where, you know, there's sort of the base beta, uh, started a lot of this of just, you know, like, let's put the information out there. Um, let's not gatekeep it as much as maybe was historically done. Um, you know, and I, and I do think actually uh, to, to Brendan Weinstein's credit with uh, base beta, you know, he kind of has this philosophy of you shouldn't need to be one of the cool kids to have access to good information. Like, you know, it should be totally fine if you're just a passionate jumper, but you're quiet and you know, you're not hanging out in the horner. Um, that shouldn't be a reason why you have less access to information than if you know you're you're a social butterfly and you're talking and hanging out with base jumpers all the time. Um, and so I think there's a balance there, and that's kind of why I implemented this verification system in baseline. And it's basically says you know if you've uploaded a couple of base jumping tracks, um, or if you you know if you're a known jumper, or if I you know, recognize your name as I'm just, you know, reviewing things, um, you'll get verified and then that'll get pretty broad access to exit points and laser profiles. Um, it won't do all of them. Um, and I think a point that is worth mentioning here is that if you upload a track to baseline, um, that data will never be made public. Um, and so it's not going to take, you know, your local jump that you established and, you know, you're jumping and maybe it's in a sensitive location. Um, it's never going to take that information and make it public. Um, if you do go into baseline and you are verified though, there are, uh, about 400 something jumps, which are marked as public. Um, and that is basically jumps, which have been jumped by multiple people, they are publicly known, YouTube videos with named locations, things like that. Um, and so it, do, it does share a fair amount of information in that regard. Um, and many of those are technical exits. Like just because you see an exit on there doesn't mean, you know, it's easy or that, that you're capable of it. But, you know, I felt like providing things like the lat long coordinates and the altitude of an exit point is the right balance of, sharing information where there's still an element of adventure, right? If you have coordinates for an exit point, um, that does, you know, reduce uncertainty a lot, but it doesn't necessarily show you how to get to that exit point. It doesn't necessarily show you exactly what the cliff looks like or where the landing zone is. And so it still kind of forces you to engage your brain and think about the jump and evaluate yourself, bring a laser so that when you get there, you can measure it yourself and not just trust the information on the internet. Um, that's kind of what I've been going with the sort of the trade-offs that I've chosen uh, when making baseline. Yeah, I appreciate that. Like, I mean, based on what you're saying, one of the things that I think that would be good to add to something like base beta is uh, like a sensitive site warning. There's one exit that I looked up on there recently that it's local, and I know that um, it just won't tolerate a lot of jumpers. Uh, the landing areas are all private property, and uh, there had been an incident there in the past, and they were it was there was a risk of shutting it down completely. And now you can't find videos of it on the internet and people don't call it by name. And, 
Yeah, I think there'd be a benefit there of like, you know, maybe a, a general description of what it is and where it is, but just hey, contact the locals if you're if you're that motivated to go there, like uh hit up people that are in the area before you go. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. And you know, just if for example, if you log into baseline and like somebody, you know, who's a listener sees an exit that is sensitive and they don't and it's public but they don't think it should be, like send an email, there's a contact me button and like I've never not taken down an exit if there was a good reason for it being sensitive. Like I'm not trying to burn down a site. But also, you know, there's there's 400 plus other ones uh where, you know, if you take down one or two sites, like there's still a lifetime of jumping essentially available. And like not every site is going to get burned. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. This has been a, a great conversation and I've got a bunch of tips that I can now apply to my, uh, my own jumping. So uh, I really appreciate your time and uh, especially uh, for your time creating the website and, and the app and, and, and all of this. So uh, is there a way that people can support you or, or contribute in any way? Uh, yeah. So if you go to baseline.ws and, and you're on there, there's a donate link in the upper right corner. Um, as I was saying, you know, the, the site is free. Like I don't want anyone to be like held back on any safety thing because they were concerned about the cost or anything. Not that it isn't an expensive sport to begin with. Um, but you know, the donations help me with server costs and, and things like that. So it's certainly appreciated when people do that. Cool. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we, uh, shut this down? Uh, no, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on here and, and, you know, sort of talk about baseline with the community. It's been, uh, sort of by word of mouth, I've never really actively promoted it. And so, you know, I've even heard about many, you know, super experienced jumpers who have been jumping for, you know, decades, uh, having not heard about it or not knowing how to use some of the features. So, you know, again, the goal is kind of to, to get the word out there so that people can make more informed decisions about their jumping and, and jump more things and jump them more safely, hopefully. Cool. Yeah. Well, I have to uh, admit that uh, my intention here was mostly selfish because uh, I saw what a, a great application it, it ha can be. And I wanted to just get a, a one-on-one uh, tutorial. So uh, now it's going to be uh, widely heard and uh, I appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for the good conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode. If you have any comments or suggestions, we love hearing from you. Email us or send us a message. Links in the description. Thanks again to Mark Stockwell, our sound mixer and co-producer. We're extremely lucky to have him. See you next time or come find us on the exit point. Nah, nah, we gotta stop saying that because it's cheesy and like how creepy would it be if someone came and found us on the next point? <laughs>